0: Martin Luther, the great reformer, said to a contemporary Christian leader, Erasmus, your thoughts of God are too human. Your thoughts of God are too human. The majesty of God, we just saw it in the stars, in the universal expression Someone has made the observation about our current generation, we live in a day where we have great thoughts of ourselves and small thoughts of God. So often we struggle to believe in God as God is. We believe in God as we conceptualize Him to be, which if we are not careful is too small and too limited and fail to believe in God as He really is and presents Himself to be. We're going to look this morning at the eighth psalm. The eighth psalm is one of what we call the nature psalms. It is a psalm that uses nature and pulls us into nature to realize in an ever greater way exactly how powerful and how great the Lord God is. I've been a series of messages in the month of November entitled, Thank God. And last week we looked at Psalm 3 and we thanked God for His presence and being with us during difficult times in life. This psalm is one where we thank God for His majesty. So often when we thank God for something, we thank God for what He's done for us or what He has given for us. But how often do we thank God for who He is and who he has chosen to reveal himself as. And that's exactly what happens in the 8th Psalm. David reflects on the greatness of God, the power of God, the awesomeness of God, and he begins to worship God, not for what God has necessarily done for him or given to him, but he worships and thanks God for who he is, thanking God for his majesty. Psalm 8. If you'll join with me as we read there, Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers... The moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. And you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, and whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And my sermon outline is contained in your Bibles and, um, excuse me, in your bulletins, and I'd like for you to follow along. It would be nice if it was in your Bibles if you follow along with me there. This psalm is written to the choir master, and apparently it was written for that purpose. As David penned it, it was for the congregations of Israel to sing in worship to the Lord. And he begins with focusing in verse 1 on the majesty of the name of God. Now, Throughout Scripture, you see over and over again the phrase, the name of God, the name of God. What is that in reference to? Well, it is a name, but it is far more encompassing than what we would normally think of. The name of God is a reference to every revelation of God that He has given. In other words, everything that God has done... Everything that He is, every way that He tries to communicate to us through His words and through His action is what the Old Testament will refer to as the name of God. Also, the use of a name. When you give your name to somebody, what are you saying to them? I'm introducing myself to you and I'm opening the door for a relationship with you so that when God gives His name to His people, when God gives His name to us, It is His way of saying, I want to connect with you, I am here right among you, and I want to establish and grow a relationship with you. Now, in Scripture, there are various names of God that are given. They are given at specific times in the history of the nation of Israel, and they are done for the purpose of, again, establishing that relationship with His people. Now, we're going to look at two names of God in just a moment from the Old Testament The reason there are so many different names for God that are given is because no one name fully and adequately can express the circumference of who God is. He is so great. He is so powerful. He is so holy. He is so mighty that there is nothing that one name, there's no way one name could fully express it. Now when we get to the New Testament, of course, we see the name of Jesus But you also see all kinds of titles for Christ. We're going to look at one of them Wednesday night in our Bible study time together. And as you look at the titles of Christ, you see again that we cannot confine the greatness of who Jesus is to just one title and to one name. Now notice what he says here beginning in verse 1. O Lord, our Lord. And you will notice in your Bibles that that it should be capitalized, O Lord, capital L-O-R-A-D, Our Lord, capital L, and then small case, O-R-A-D. Two different Hebrew names for God there. The first name where it's capital L-O-R-A-D, and every time in your English Bibles you see capital L-O-R-A-D for Lord, it is the English translation of what in Hebrew is the name for God, Yahweh. Or Jehovah. And as I said to you last week, we're not exactly sure how that name is pronounced because the ancient Jews who wrote the Old Testament or wrote it down and copied it felt that the name was too holy to be spoken. And so that's the best we can get at what his name was pronounced by, either Yahweh or Jehovah. The significance of that name, O oh Lord, David looks towards God, and the first way he addresses Him is with the name Yahweh. And he's saying that you are the God of the covenant. That was the personal name of God given to His people. You are the God of the covenant, which means that God committed Himself to His people. You are the God of the covenant, and you are the promise keeper. You are the one who has chosen to take the initiative and make promises to us, and you keep those promises, and you follow through on those promises. So the first thing that David is saying is he begins to pen this psalm which is a worship expression to God, is God, when I look at you, when I contemplate you, when I serve you, the first thing that I acknowledge, God, is that I'm in covenant with you because you're in covenant with me. I'm in relationship with you, Lord, because you've taken the initiative. You've come to me and you've said, I want to be in a relationship with you. And God, you have committed yourself to me. You have filled your word with promises to me about who you will be in my life, and what you will do. Now the idea also behind Lord is that He is uncaused existence. And it is the, this idea that God does not exist because somebody made Him. God does not exist because He is sustained by somebody else or something else. He was uncaused and He exists totally every day, 24 hours a day, has for eternity, will for the rest of eternity, because He is sufficient in and of Himself to exist. God doesn't get up in the morning and check in with anybody to make sure He's going to get it through the day. God doesn't end the day with swiping His brow and saying, well, I got through today, I hope I can get through tomorrow. God says, I woke up this morning because I never had to wake up. I am totally powerful. I am totally sufficient in and of myself. No one calls me. No one makes me. No one keeps me going. And what David is saying here is, Lord, when I look at your universe, I realize how powerful you are, that nobody created you, nobody made you. Now, all of us as parents have probably been asked this question that stumped us. If you are a parent of a young child, you will be asked this question, and that is, who brought God into existence, who birthed God, when did God start, something like that, and we always look at the child or the grandchild when they ask that, and we're stumped ourselves, because you see, we live in a world where we, everything we know is caused by something, everything had a starting point, a starting place, but when it comes to God, you don't have a starting point, a starting place. When it comes to God, there is no cause that we can look at and say, well, this made and created God. God has always existed. Now, we struggle with that. We can't understand that. And why is that? Because God's bigger than the space between our two ears. If I could understand everything there was to understand about God, then God would not be bigger than my brain. But because God is so much greater and bigger than my brain, then It's that sense of Him being the uncaused existence. He's always been. He always will be. The New Testament refers to Him as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. It also is the idea in this name of God, literally translated to be. And there's so much tied up in that. I don't have time to go into it, but let me hit the the baseline of it. When He says, "Oh Yahweh, you are being, He is saying, you are ultimate and final reality. You are ultimate and final reality. Now folks we struggle a lot in life with what is reality. If you ever go through a period of depression one of the things you'll struggle you, we struggle with in the battle of depression is what really is reality. And what David is saying here and calling upon the name of God here as Yahweh is he's saying, Your ultimate reality, your final reality, at the end of the day, God, who you are, where you are, and what you say is reality. Whatever circumstance we are in, whatever we find ourselves in in life, the ultimate reality is what God says about it, where God is in it, and where God is taking it. Everything else that is different from or opposed to what God is saying, where He is going, and what He is doing is a lie. That's why Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Because when I'm moving the truth of God in the person of God and what He is doing, then I am moving an ultimate, final reality. O Lord, our Lord, the next name for God that's used there, is the name for God Adonai, A-D-O-N-A-I, transliterated, Adonai. Now, David has just acknowledged that God is the ultimate promise keeper, that he's the final reality in life, that he is all powerful, that he is uncaused existence. And that's all great. But this next term for God, adonai, means ownership or mastership. And this is what David is saying. God You are powerful. You are great. You are the ground of reality. But you own me. You're my master. And I'm your servant. You see, it is never sufficient to acknowledge the greatness of God without then acknowledging that He's my master. It does not suffice to say, God, you are great and you are wonderful and you're powerful and I acknowledge that, and now I'm just going to go home and do my own thing and live life my own way. The greatness of God, if I truly see it, if I truly experience it, demands of me, calls from me, obedience, that, Lord, you are over my life. You control my life. You see, experiencing His majesty leads me to being a servant of His. If I'm going to really experience the majesty of God, the greatness of God, then I'm also going to surrender to Him as His servant. Now the significance of that is in the ancient world, a slave had the right to expect some things of his master. He had the right to expect his master's protection, his master's help, and his master's direction. And so what David is saying here when he says, O Lord, our Lord, is that as you are my Adonai, as you are my master, my owner, I expect and I look forward to your protection. Remember we saw last week in the third psalm that David was being chased by his son Absalom in his kingdom, and they were in his army, and they were looking to destroy David and wipe him out. Lord, you're my Adonai. You are my protection, the protector of my soul. You are my help. I need your help. And Lord, you are like my internal GPS. You give direction and guidance to my life. You are my Adonai. O oh Lord, our Lord, verse 1, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When he says how majestic is your name, God is calling us from a boring Mediocre experience with him to engaging him in his majesty. Now he says, how majestic is your name in all the world or all the earth. The word majestic there is from, we get our Latin word from it, it means greatness. It's a declaration of the greatness of God and an invitation to worship him. So what David is saying here is, Lord, Adonai, you are great. And I recognize that I am being called by you to worship you. We talk sometimes about the call of God. And I'm afraid so many times when we talk about the call of God, we limit the idea of the call of God to those of us who are called into full-time ministry. But the call of God is so much greater and broader than that. And folks, we are all called to worship Him. We are called to engage Him and be engaged by Him. And when we engage Him and He engages us, first thing we do is worship Him. And what He's saying here is, you are so majestic and I'm going to worship you in your greatness and in your majesty. Now let's talk for a moment about His majesty and His greatness and how it's seen in Scripture. First of all, in the dawn of creation in those opening chapters of the book of Genesis, when it describes God's creation of the world, what do we learn about God? We learn that He is thinking, that He creates out of His capacity to think, to mold, to shape, design. We see that He is a God who feels. He is emotionally ...drawn to and wrapped up in what He is creating. He is active. When God comes on the scene in the book of Genesis... ...He isn't sitting back, watching and detached from creation. He is actively involved in the process of creation. He is intensely interested in what He creates... Remember he tells Adam, I want you to name all the animals. He is involved in his creation in naming each of them. So what we see in the greatness of God is how engaged God is in what he is doing. Now the Bible says in the over the New Testament that we are his new creation. From Genesis to Revelation, when God creates and God is always creating because God is so bound up with so much creative energy, He can't hold it to Himself. He has to continue to create. Scientists tell us that the universe is not static, that it is continuously expanding. That's God continuing to create. That's because that's who He is. Secondly, as Creator, we see Him bringing order out of chaos. Again, back to Genesis. It says, the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters and it's dark and there's chaos and God in His greatness brings order out of chaos. He brings life into being. Next we see God in His greatness creating man from dust. God loves to create out of nothing. God loves to take dust and make something out of it to demonstrate that the issue is not the material that's in front of him, it is the power of the one who's touching the material that makes all the difference. Folks, when we look at our lives and we say, God can't make much of me, the issue is not how much I've got, it's how great he is and what he's able to do. When we look at situations and we say, God can't do much with this. There's not much to work with. The issue is not how much there is to work with. It is the God who is touching what's not much to work with and who's making something out of it. He floods the world in judgment. He is present everywhere. One of the names for God is El-Rai, the God who sees me. Oh, my gracious. When you get over to the New Testament and you get the setup up for Gen. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. You see God in His greatness searching for us. How does God demonstrate His majestic greatness in searching for us? Well the first thing He does is He brings up a whole bunch of prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel and they begin to say there's someone who's coming. There's someone who's coming. Don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. There's someone who's coming who's going to take away your sin. There's someone who's coming who's going to give you hope. There's someone who's coming for me who's going to change you. The Messiah is on His way. He is coming. He sends the prophets as a demonstrative demonstration of His greatness. But then He surprises everybody. God's majesty is a surprising majesty. Because when the Messiah shows up, it's not in some regal, powerful empire in Rome or some emperor. It's in a little baby in Bethlehem. He is searching after us, coming after us in the form of a baby, about as innocent and vulnerable and seemingly weak as you can get. But he is coming after us as one of us. Because the best way to come after us and search for us and connect with us is as one of us. He comes as a baby. And then that baby begins to grow up. And he goes through his adolescent years. And I had a professor when I was at Southwestern Seminary of Youth Ministry who used to close his prayers in class every day by saying, And Lord, we want to pray in the name of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, for whom the scriptures are strangely silent about his adolescent years. And then he would go on with class when he grew up and went through those adolescent years. And then he went into adulthood. And man, what don't you see about Jesus? How is He searching for us in His majesty and His greatness in the Gospels? He's coming after us by healing people, by raising the dead, by teaching eternal truth, by setting people free. He's coming after us in the New Testament because He comes to people that everybody else was rejecting and didn't have time for. When the lady who is called an adultery is thrown at his feet and they're looking for him to say, hey, stone her and get rid of her, Jesus basically sits there and said, I've been coming after you. I divinely arranged for you to get thrown at my feet because now that you're at my feet, you can be cleansed, you can be set free, you can be given a new life because I've been coming after you. They were coming after you to kill you. I was coming after you to redeem you. I am coming after you. Then He came after us in His majesty on the cross. When He hung on that cross and shed every ounce of blood in His body for us. And three days later, He came out of the tomb. Yes, to make a statement about His power over death, sin and the grave. But even more, He came out of that tomb to make a statement about the fact that He came out of the grave to come after us. He rose in His greatness to come after after us. He is great in his mystery and what he's doing. Now, I want you to see this. what he says. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. Now notice the location of that, ma- that majesty. In all the earth. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name, the revelation of yourself. Where? In all the earth. Do you realize what that says to us about missions and evangelism? That God has promised that the greatness of His name will be known in every place on this planet. That means that wherever we take the gospel of Jesus Christ, He has already committed Himself to the greatness of His name being known there. Now, sometimes we have to struggle and wrestle and sweat and pray to try to find His greatness. But He has already committed that His greatness will be known in all the earth. I've said for years to teams as we prepare them to go on mission trips, when you get to wherever you're going, Jesus is already there. Where you get to where you go, and Jesus was there before you got there. He'll be there after you leave. But you are not bringing Jesus to that place. You are just joining Him in what He is already about. His greatness, He says, will be known in all the earth. Now, notice, second, the majesty of His creativity, verse 2. You have set your glory above the heavens. David looked up at the moon, the stars, the creation of God, and he said, your glory, which speaks of the heaviness of who he is, his majesty and all that his majesty is involved in, it's above the heavens. Now, why did he say that? I think for two reasons. One is we we admire the heavens, but we don't worship the heavens. We admire nature, and we learn from nature about God, but we don't worship nature. But the heavens, this creation, cannot contain God. He's above it because He could not be contained by it or in it. Now, the idea there of Him being above the heavens is not trying to say that He is distant from us, but that he is above and beyond us. Let me illustrate it this way. Those of you that have iPhones, you can get, in, get on Wi-Fi, probably even in this room, and make a connection. Now, if there are Wi-Fi... I'm going to show you how unscientific I am here. Waves or whatever you call them that are in this room, all right? You and I cannot see them. We cannot touch them. It's, in a, it's here and it's present. It's just in a whole different sphere of reality. And when you walked in the room, you didn't look for a Wi-Fi wave to go through you and separate you. So you ducking them in the pews, you know, and all that. It's here and we know it's here and it's a reality, but we don't see It's in a different sphere. And the idea here the greatness of God is not that God has separated himself from us. It's that God is among us but he's in a different sphere of reality, the ultimate and final sphere of reality. He is right here and he is right among us, and he is great and he is awesome. His greatness doesn't separate us from him. Now notice what he's going to say in verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, you've set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? David says, when I see how great creation is, why in the world would you bother with me? But then notice verse 5. You have made man, man and woman, us human beings, a little lower than the heavenly beings, and you've crowned us with glory and honor. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. Notice the second phrase there. You have crowned him, that is, human beings, with glory and honor. And I want you to follow this. David says, when I look at human beings... What I see are products of God's creative hand that He has crowned with His glory and honor. You and I don't have to go through life trying to get other people to crown us with glory and honor because God has already done it. And no human being can beat what God's already done. How many times do we get offended and ticked off and mad and frustrated and down in the dumps because we didn't get an organization or we didn't get somebody to crown us with glory and honor. We didn't get the title we wanted, the recognition we wanted, or whatever else it is we felt like we wanted we deserved. Oh, we don't need it because He's already crowned us with glory and honor. I don't have to earn the crown of glory and honor because He's already done that too. So I don't have to work up to it and earn it. But folks, that also means... that every person i see by the virtue of the fact they've been crowned by created by god they are crowned by him with glory and honor just about every culture of the world has some type of pecking order somebody's important somebody is not important Somebody is somebody, somebody is not somebody. I just started reading a biography on George Washington. At the time George Washington was born here in Virginia, this state colony at the time was extremely driven by class. And believe it or not, George Washington was from a family that was basically a commoner. And the only way you could jump classes and get up was either to marry into the right family or be befriended and brought up by a family. He happened to become good friends with Lord Fairfax, from which Fairfax County is named, and that's what began to push him up in the social order. But his name at the time meant nothing. His status was far below what we tend to associate as being His status. Every culture does that. But one culture. The culture of heaven. When we get to heaven someday, God is not going to look at us and say, who did you marry, or where were you from, or what was your last name, or how much money did you have, and therefore your status is going to be predicated on that. He's going to say, I made you and I created you, and therefore everybody here is of equal status. Now we got to start living in the reality of heaven down here. Which means when I look at other people, I don't say, how do you check off the pecking order? I just look at people and I say, they are the product of the creative hand of God, their worth, their value, and their dignity... Not their looks, not their money, not their education, not their behavior, but their worth, value, and dignity is simply because God made them and God created them. He has crowned them with glory and honor. Now, notice verses 6 following. This is our responsibility. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, the beast of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, and whatever passes along the paths of the sea. In other words, God's saying, okay, folks, I've given you this creation, but now it's your responsibility to take care of it. That is the responsibility that you carry. When my son was about one or so, we were visiting my father-in-law in Beaverdam, Virginia, and I picked him up And took Jonathan out one day. And there was a tree line that went down by the property. And it was the fall of the year. And we got really close to that tree line. And I didn't say anything to Jonathan. But a natural curiosity that this little guy had. He began to reach his hand out and to touch and to handle the leaves. Now, as I watched him... The different trees, of course, had different sizes and shapes and colors to the leaves. But if you take a leaf and you're real careful to hold it and to feel it, you also discover that leaves have different textures. texture of an oak leaf isn't going to be the same as a maple, etc. And what I observed my son doing is that he was experiencing the texture of the leaves. And I was fascinated watching him discover the texture of those different leaves. As he would take those little hands and rub them over the leaf and hold it. But I realized something else as I watched my son do that. I had been walking past trees for decades and paying no attention to the texture of any of those leaves. The only thing I did was fuss about when they fell and I had to clean them up in the yard. Because I had lost the wonder of creation. And through my one-year-old son, I was rediscovering the wonder of creation. And what David, I believe, is trying to say to us in the 8th Psalm is, rediscover the wonder of who I am and what I have created. Experience the texture of who I am. You see, it's one thing to look at a leaf from a distance. It's something else to hold it in your hand and to examine it and to feel it. And God is saying, engage me. Engage what I've created. And don't be satisfied to look at me from a distance. Discover the texture of who I am. My majesty. And then worship me. Let's pray. Lord, we want to ask you and we want to invite you to, Lord, help us thank you for your majesty to engage you, God, in who you are, in how great you are. Lord, to rediscover or discover for the first time, Lord, there's the texture of your being, and to worship you in that. Lord, you're calling us to that. And Lord, in worshiping you, and thanking you for your greatness and your majesty, that you are our Yahweh, our Adonai, you are our master, we're your servant. You're the one who has entered into relationship with us and promised yourself to us. God, in discovering that, we discover the most important thing in life. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I want to invite you today, if you've never trusted the Lord Jesus as your personal Savior, to make the decision today to trust Him, to follow Him, to know Him. And as we sing in just a moment, I want to invite you to walk the aisle of this church and be willing to give your life to Jesus and choose to follow Him. If you sense the Lord's leading you into our church family, we invite you to come. And if God's working in your life in any other way, and you desire prayer, feel free to come. I'd love to pray with you. or The front's open here or the altar if you want to just kneel in prayer. Lord, thank You for the experience of who you are in your majesty. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.